Avlock. Hello. Avlock, thank you so much for, for coming on the show today. Uh, you're well known as the CEO of, of AngelList Venture. Uh, before that, had quite an experience as a founder uh, yourself and working for a couple of companies. Um, so we'd love to get started uh, with, with your background. Uh, I understand you actually were, were born in the Middle East and lived in India for some time and, and grew up in, uh, in Toronto, Canada as well before going to University of Waterloo and eventually ending up in San Francisco. Uh, so we'd love to hear kind of how that all played out, what it was like growing up and uh, what brought you out to Silicon Valley. Yeah, and uh, very, very excited to be here. Um, and great, great place to start with my background. Uh, yeah, so I was born in the Middle East in, in a place called Qatar. Uh, it was actually the military base for the U.S. So I actually grew up around uh, a lot of U.S. military planes. Um, was there, lived there for quite a while. We actually moved out because of the Gulf War. And so it's a bit of a nomad with my family uh, for, for a few years. So we moved to India. It was more of a pit stop as we waited on our visas for Canada. And so then we finally settled down in Canada in Toronto, where I went to high school and university there. Uh, it, was great, uh, it was a great experience all around. Um, living in different uh, parts of the world definitely gave me uh, very, very different perspectives um, because uh, you know, I've lived in, uh, in di many different types of regimes, if you will. Um, and I've gotten to see exactly how uh, the society develops and interacts and evolves and moving to Canada. And then, of course, eventually the U.S. after university um, really uh, gave me a deep appreciation for what we have here in, uh, in, in North America. And so, yeah, I went to uh, university at, in Waterloo. I studied software engineering uh, and then moved out to San Francisco uh, a year after I graduated uh, a, a really close friend of mine uh, convinced me, pulled me out here. I, I came out here for a weekend. I went to a conference, met a lot of really, really great people, and I made the decision. I flew back, uh, gave my notice, and then literally drove my car down a week later, uh, all the way from Toronto, right down through to San Francisco. And I haven't looked back. Uh, haven't looked back since. It's a great story. I appreciate you sharing. Uh, I understand when you got here is, is 2008, kind of right in the middle of, or right at the beginning of rather, the financial crisis. Uh, and Sequoia had just posted their infamous uh, RIP Good Times doc. So now 2020, um, how do you think about the difference between what happened then in 2008 and how that affected people in San Francisco and you as, as a newcomer, obviously have a much different perspective now uh, over a decade later and how do you think about the difference of the uh, the results of this pandemic yeah it's a great question um yeah the 2008 crisis it, it definitely hit right as i moved to san francisco and i would say personally it didn't really have that much of an impact i do distinctly remember the sequoia rip memo uh, but I, I didn't really know what it meant uh, meaning i just gotten here uh, you know, I didn't have any, uh, I didn't have any successes yet. So I don't really have skin in the game, if you will, uh, in the public markets or even in the private markets for that matter. And so I didn't really fully understand and appreciate, uh, what had happened. Um, all I really knew was great. Now I don't need to be in, uh, in, in South Bay or in Santa Clara. That's where I was living. Um, and Santa Clara is about an hour South of San Francisco. And that, you know, for m most people don't uh, probably don't remember this because they just recently got in the te tech industry, but uh, Santa Clara's um, 
close to San Jose, Palo Alto actually used to be the tech center uh, uh, around a decade ago. And everyone who used to come here used to actually go there. San Francisco was not a thing back then. And what happened was, and I can only speak for me and my group and uh, other affiliated groups, was that when the 2008 crisis hit, uh, we basically packed up and said, well, what's the point of being down here when everything is dead? Um, and there's no activity, let's just go to San Francisco, at least, uh, at least we'll, we, we'll get to enjoy our lives in the city. And that actually started a migration of all the young founders to actually go to San Francisco. And I actually remember our, my, my very first neighbor was actually one of the founders of Dropbox, Arash, who actually lived underneath us. And same, same very, very same um, uh, uh, thought process in terms of why to move to the city. And so uh, from there, uh, it was basically this migration of all of these uh, different founders that moved to the city. And it was, uh, I, I almost would like to call it, it was the golden era. Um, you know, no, no one really was looking at tech. It was sort of the smaller, um, uh, you know, the smaller industry and everyone could just tinker. Um, now contrast that to today and what's happening today, it's very, very different. Um, What's happening today is that while the non-tech industries are getting decimated right now, tech is getting amplified. And there are just so many eyes on it. And it really is the future of the economy right now. And we're seeing that if you look at the stock market, um, it looks like everything is doing well. But in fact, it's just the tech companies. If you just segment it for the tech companies, you'll see they're the ones actually driving the majority of the returns and the rest of the stock market is actually in a recession. Uh, so it does mirror the physical world economy. Um, so I would say definitely huge differences between 2008 and today, um, where in 2008, it was the, uh, it, it was a, it was, it wasn't a tech related crisis, uh, but it still impacted tech. But today tech is, li is literally the, uh, is the thing that is driving the entire economy. Um, and so massive differences between the two, uh, the, the, the two recessions. Yeah, I think it's it's very interesting. Uh, people are talking about how this crisis is accelerating tech in a lot of ways. Uh, and I, I put a small asterisk on that uh, to say that, you know, some of these things that we're developing, like remote work, for example, uh, in my opinion, I've been thinking about this for a few years. And, and I think that that was going to be the future, or at least part remote work was going to be the future, uh, sort of inevitably. But not necessarily because of people are afraid to see each other because they think they'll get a virus. So there's certain um, aspects of the pandemic that are accelerating things forward, I think, uh, in a way that they would have gone otherwise. And then maybe there's just like a slight different angle to it. And it'll be interesting to see how that all plays out. Um, when you first got out to San Francisco, I'm assuming you took a, a kind of sort of regular uh, out of college job working, you know, using your software engineering degree uh, at a startup. Um, would like to fast forward to when you decided to start your own company, um, Fastbyte, which, which ended up selling in 2015, I believe it was, to mm -hmm. uh, Caviar and Square. Would love to hear about what got you interested in that space and why you started the company and then uh, how that experience was formative in your development. Yeah. Yeah, the, the path to starting a company was actually very, uh, it, it, was, it was organic in that I always knew I wanted to work on something, uh, would work on my own company, solve my own problem. And so I was always tinkering on the side. I always had these side projects. 
Um, and some of these side projects actually ended up being uh, cash flow generating side projects, but they were always small, but kept me intellectually stimulated. Um, then in, in 2014, uh, I had this observation, uh, and again, it, it came from, a, from a, my personal need. And my observation then was, um, it, it used to take 80 minutes uh, for food to get delivered. And this seems crazy now in, in the days of Uber Eats and, and Postmates and DoorDash and Caviar, but where, where they can deliver in 40 minutes or less. But back, back in 2014, it actually used to take around 80 minutes to 90 minutes sometimes. And the observation I had was, uh, I wonder if everyone is actually just ordering the same set of dishes, because at least that fit my pattern if I'm ordering um, Chinese food or Thai food or Indian food, I'm usually uh, cycling through uh, the same sets of dishes again and again. And uh, you know, with that hypothesis, I talked to a few of my friends and um, at least within my circle, it ended up being true as well. And I just decided to build the initial app and just hire a courier off of Craigslist uh, to go test out the solution, which was a predefined menu of items that were already uh, with the courier so that by the time you order it, the courier would be around the corner from you and they can deliver it. Now, there was an insane amount of complexity that went into building something like this. Um, you would need to predict what people would want to order um, by the location in the city, by time of day, by weather. Uh, so there were a lot of uh, factors that went into it. And then you can actually deliver an amazing fast experience. And so our average delivery time was actually uh, seven minutes uh, um, for, for these dishes. And so we rolled it out in beta and uh, we had a bunch of people that just started using it and it caught wind of a few folks at Square. And interestingly enough, um, the team at Cash App started using it first. And then from there it bubbled up and uh, a few other folks in the company started using it. And uh, they fell in love with it. Uh, and they just love the extremely fast delivery experience. And they just acquired Caviar in the summer of uh, 2014. And they wanted to provide the extremely fast experience as well. So pair them both up. So if you want something uh, super fast, you can get it from Fastbite. If you, if you don't mind waiting for a little bit longer, you can get it from Caviar. And uh, so they made a pretty aggressive acquisition offer which uh, we officially closed in February of 2015. And so I joined as a, uh, at a director level and I was driving fast by the business as well as at one point I was a product lead on, on Caviar. So I wanna get to your experience at Square for sure, but before we get there, you talked mm -hmm. about how when you first had the idea, uh, you spun up an app pretty quickly. Well, first you asked your friends and it seemed to mm -hmm. resonate and then you spun up an app pretty quickly and. Uh, and built that yourself, I'm presuming, and then uh, yeah. hired a courier to take over the, you know, manual labor that the app would require. Uh, and pretty quickly, you realized that you had a winning solution and that you could develop it kind of legit. Um, that's not something that a lot of people have such an easy time with. And maybe it wasn't easy. Maybe it just sounds easy in retrospect. But how do you think you you particularly think about getting to proof of concept so quickly and developing that early product market fit with something um, really bare bones, but, but that does the job uh, before, you know, digging in and putting in 110% on building it out. That's a good question. Uh, short answer is it, it really does depend. It depends on what 
the product is that you're building. Sometimes you can actually build uh, the, uh, the product experience that's needed uh, just through a bit of tinkering and bringing it together. But sometimes you actually do need to build it, uh, build it all out in order to get any, any sort of strong indication of how successful it's going to be. Um, now, in this particular case, uh, I did have a background in, in software engineering. Uh, so I did have uh, some of the ability to bring it all together. There were some parts that um, required some design help. And so uh, on, on the design side, I would just scour uh, the internet for any sort of templated designs that would be enough for me to put together the initial experience so I can at least start using it. And I would say that really is the core uh, thing to focus on uh, is you really want to focus on what is the uh, minimum experience needed for someone to actually use it and get value out of your product. And I would say that, you know, in my career, I've constantly been reminded that the value you're providing to your customers is everything. And it seems uh, pretty obvious, but it's really hard to lose sight of that. Customers don't ultimately care about how pretty your design looks or, um, you know, or how bug-free your app is, although they do care, but I would still say that's more of a, a micro point. What people ultimately care about, what is the most important thing to focus on is the value part. And value comes from um, what, what unique thing or, or what, uh, what are you providing your customers that they otherwise just have no other option to get. Or if they do, that other option just looks so archaic, so, um, uh, yeah, so archaic that they would never want to go back to using it. And that really is what is the magic moment uh, in a customer experience. You really want to focus on what is that. So for Fastbite, that magic moment was actually getting your food really hot in seven minutes. That was the magic moment. That's what made people go, wow, this is amazing. Um, and then they tell their friends about it. And so when, when anyone thinks about product innovation or product development, I would really focus deeply on that. What is the value? Now, once you know what that is and you're trying to build the initial experience uh, to get there, then you, you know, I would say there is a lot that people can learn online today. There's just a, uh, I wish I'd started my entrepreneur career today because there's just so much information out there um, and, and you can learn something about almost every single topic out there. And so my recommendation would be, um, if you're trying to learn how to code, you can, you, know, you can learn how to code today. You're trying to learn how to design, you can learn how to design. There's some amazing templates you can start with. And so I would highly recommend that people try and bring together some of these experiences themselves. Now, if, you know, if it's not their strong suit, then I would recommend bringing together a team, recruiting a team, and it could be a, a small founding team. You get a designer, you get an engineer, you're set and you can move forward. Um, but my, my recommendation, what I always lean towards, at least for the initial tinkering, is to try and uh, uh, push it forward by yourself as much as possible before bringing a, a team in. That's a great perspective. Uh, you talk about the importance of, of adding value to the customer first and foremost. Square obviously figured that out and, and was able to offer a compelling uh, value proposition early, basically allowing uh, people, small businesses to accept payments uh, where either they couldn't do that before or uh, there was a lot of friction in uh, becoming able to do that. 
and Square basically took on that complexity themselves. Uh, I've heard you describe innovation as basically the process of removing friction and removing steps and complexity from the process. Um, Square obviously crushed that and you've spoken a lot about how uh, you had a, a great experience there and think a lot about the company. You know, you thought about, uh, thought about it a lot then and, and you think about it very highly still now. Uh, what do you think made Square so unique and uh, you know, what did you like so much about it as a company? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I would say what makes it unique, uh, of course, definitely the people. Um, I, you know, the collection of talent, uh, of high class talent, all in one place, uh, was very. It was just very, very good. So it always starts with the people. The people were great. Um, I would say the other piece is really focusing on the on the customer and and providing value to the customer and ultimately for square and as at least as this is my my perspective as i think about you know the parts of square that are growing uh very very aggressively um, those are the parts of square where they've managed to truly deliver value outsized value relative to any other uh, any other um, company you could choose. And if you look at payments, uh, it really came down to eliminating all of the hassles, all of the steps in the middle. And it wasn't that, you know, that, that, that of course, isn't going to be easy ever, but um, take, you know, removing that complexity, removing that friction and taking it on as a company and then going to solve it is actually, uh, is a theme that keeps recurring inside Square. It also was there with Cash App. Uh, with Cash App, now you can actually download an app and get a bank account. Uh, you basically, you get to eliminate a trip to the uh, to a, to a banking uh, to to, to a, a banking outlet where you need to go get a you need to get an account. I haven't even gone to a bank in, in such a long time um, because now you can just download an app and you have a bank account. You can manage everything from your phone, and so you want to think about what are these things that people are doing today that they take for granted, and then just like ask, is there a better way? Like, why are we still doing this? Why, why did we still, I mean, even as, as close as, as early as five years ago, we still used to go to a, a, a bank uh, to actually get an account open. And it always used to be super painful. They give you all these papers, you have to sign it. It's just too much. So as, as I look at Square and my, my, my perspective on why Square has been so successful is um, it really focuses deeply on removing any and all friction for their customers and truly making it a very, very delightful experience and just consistently focusing on that. And that, that bleeds into the company. Um, I, I can't speak for the company since uh, 2017 um, onwards or mid 2017 onwards. But when I was there, um, we, uh, we actually used to go through planning exercises uh, through a framework called jobs to be done, which uh, again is also very customer focused. You focus on what job is the customer really trying to do uh, when, when using your product? And uh, that was incorporated across the entire company as part of planning exercise. And, and so it, it goes right back to the focus on the customer and consistently, continuously being focused on the customer. Because as an organization, actually as any organization, um, it's very easy to lose sight of that, right? You, um, there's always a bias towards um, what you immediately see in front of you. And so people always lose sight of the fact that we're, you know, a company is really just a collection of people 
uh, to go after uh, solving a customer's problem, period, full stop, nothing else. A company does not exist for anything else. It exists to go solve a customer problem and that's it. And I think over the years, people have layered in all sorts of other things of what a company is supposed to do, but ultimately that's what a company is. It's a entity that's come together. You bring together a group of people and you really go to solve a customer problem and you want to, and, and you really just want to focus on doing that extremely, extremely well. Um, and I would say that Square definitely uh, exemplified that. So you talk about how great the people were and the culture has just such an impressive bunch. Uh, so focused on, on solving a problem for the customer. Uh, Jack Dorsey, one of the people I admire in the business world, uh, obviously leading Square today and, and back then. Um, I don't know if you worked directly with him, but uh, if so, or, or even if not, would love to hear what you think makes him special as a leader and, and any uh, experiences or stories you had kind of directly or indirectly related to him. Yeah, um, I would say my, my perspective on what makes him a great leader really to uh, recruiting. Uh, and the second is really thinking through um, the, the design aspect of building a great experience and specifically honing in on the first time user experience. Uh, I'll, I'll dig into both of those. Now on the recruiting side, when, when I was considering uh, uh, joining Square, the, uh, I, you know, I was definitely hesitating. I was just, just like anyone going through an acquisition, I was going back and forth. I had very mixed feelings about it. And the meeting with Jack actually is the meeting that locked it in for me. And it was, it was, it was actually quite interesting. His vision of Cash App back then, this is uh, 2014, was so clear and so compelling it's actually what Cash App is today. And just the fact that it was such a clear and compelling view of a, uh, of a consumer product in the future and that I could see myself using that consumer product and then I could see what it really meant uh, for the industry if you start removing all those frictions and now anyone can just download an app and you get a bank account. And, and really that means any financial service that was amazing. That to me just sold it. And, uh, you know, I've been reflecting on that meeting over the years, every now and then. And I realized that that is an amazing, amazing, amazing uh, recruiter. And it was very authentic. Um, you know, it, 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 uh, the vision that was pitched happened very clear. Um, and so I would say that's, that's number one. Uh, and th the reason that's very important is you always need to recruit great talent, great people in the company. Without that, you have nothing. Um, so he's amazing. He's really, really, really good at that. Um, second one is the focus on the first time experience. And this really came about, uh, you know, through different uh, iterations on working on products where his, uh, what the observation was that his, uh, that he's very good at constantly looking at the product as a new user and, uh, and constantly focusing on how do we improve this? How do we make this simpler? And that, you know, again, like I mentioned earlier, it's very easy for, um, for companies and, and, you know, people in the company to forget why they're there. Uh, 
Um, and again, you're there to service customers, full stop period, nothing else. And especially uh, servicing the, and, and, and really looking at the product from a, uh, from a new customer's lens and really having empathy for them and empathy on like, great, you just showed up to use this new product. Is it easy to get started? Do you have a lot of questions? You have to contact someone to get those questions answered. And so that I would say is the other superpower that I've observed. I'm sure other people have different answers for this one, but this is, those are the two that, uh, that really stood out to me in my, in my time there. Now, there are of course a host of other things too, um, in terms of the transparency, in terms of you know, how the company was run, uh, having an extremely great executive bench, all of, those, all of those things are clearly very, very important as well. Um, but if I was to just pick out two attributes that I had seen that I thought were uh, very important in building a large, uh, a large and enduring company, those would be the two. That's an amazing perspective that is, is hard to get elsewhere. So really appreciate you sharing that. Uh, I think about being a founder and CEO, I think of uh, recruiting and, and vision and, and being able to tell your story uh, as kind of the the two-edged sword that uh, is the most powerful weapon any founder can have. And obviously being able to tell that story and uh, portray the vision, like you said he did with the Cash App five years from from when you spoke, uh, that obviously helps the recruiting and, and the recruiting, you know, having great minds around probably helps to refine the vision as well. So uh, it's a great combination to have. And then on the product side, uh, being able to uh, use a product as kind of a first-time uh, user I've heard him talk about how, like, uh, I think at Square, they don't, and maybe Twitter, they don't do any A-B testing, he said, because he wants to give every user the best product that they can possibly offer. He doesn't want to use them to basically figure out what the best product should be. Uh, and I thought that was an awesome take that kind of, you know, you see a lot of companies, Google, Facebook, whatever it may be, using a lot of A-B testing, Amazon, I think probably. Um, but then like one one of my favorite founders is you know historically with steve jobs and, and like apple would have never a b tested um so i think that's a pretty interesting combo of skills uh and it's really interesting to hear that from from someone like you who is kind of up close and personal um i want to get to your experience today so unfortunately i'm going to skip over the next company that you started which i think was really interesting as well um on you know helping people basically get their homes cleaned, I believe, uh, on a pretty regular basis, high frequency, uh, and kind of like a DoorDash uh, fashion, similar to your previous business. Mm -hmm. um, I do want to fast forward to AngelListo. So after you um, finished with that second company that you started, uh, Naval, I understand, came to you and was like, you know, Avlock, uh, we're, we're looking for someone to lead uh, AngelList Ventures. And, uh, you know, I think you're a good fit. And then several months later, you're in the seat. I uh, would love to talk about kind of how that conversation went and how you decided to join. And, and separately, um, you know, if, if you could, I know you're humble, but to your own horn a little bit, like, why did Naval come to you, do you think? Right. Um, I, I would say on the, on the latter part, uh, you, you'll have to ask him. <laughs> Um, I'll answer the former part. Um, actually, I'll take a stab at the latter part, my, my, my perspective, but I'll, I'll answer the former part. Um, in terms of the events leading up uh, to me joining, um, what had just happened was I'd just gone through the 
um, uh, just wrapped up the acquisition of the second company that was Ferry. And uh, Ferry, I'll just summarize Ferry. I would say Ferry was a company where, uh, you know, we had pretty large ambitions. We um, had a, it was basically a, a DoorDash style service for cleaning, for recurring cleanings. We scaled it up in San Francisco and New York. And we'd actually signed a deal with Avalon, uh, one of the largest property managers to scale it out nationwide. And through the uh, mapping that out and specifically really looking at how we can make this successful, uh, we, we had a revelation, which was this wasn't going to be a venture scalable business. And once we realized that, um, we realized that the best path forward was to actually uh, just uh, uh, wrap up an acquisition of the company. And we uh, were fortunate enough that we did find a home, uh, a home for it. Uh, I didn't join the acquiring company uh, since I had received my liquidity from Square. And I was also just, um, there, there were also some conflicts because uh, I was in product leader Caviar, as well as uh, I wanted to uh, really take uh, some time and step back from operating. I've been operating pretty nonstop for many, many years. Uh, so that was the backdrop. Um, uh, and this was February, 2019. Um, around that time, uh, Noval, of course, who was an investor in my previous companies, um, had suggested, hey, let's, let's connect before you decide to start something new, um, just to jam on different ideas and you know, what, what, what I could look at starting next. At that time, I wasn't in too much of a rush. I was still tinkering, um, but I'd already switched to using my iPad as my primary device. I was reading mostly. Uh, my schedule was wide open. Uh, you know, I, I was enjoying it quite a bit. Um, and around that time, no, no, uh, when Naval and I connected, he'd suggested uh, this, this role at Angelus and if I'd consider stepping in. Um, and this is specifically for the venture business. And at the time, I, I didn't really understand venture. I mean, I'd raised capital, of course. I understood from the founder's perspective, but it wasn't really a business that I understood. Um, and I also didn't really have any, any desire to enter venture as an investor. Um, or to operate for that matter. Um, so what we did was we actually kept doing a deep dive every, every week, every couple of weeks. And I was actually traveling at that time as well. I ended up in uh, Southeast Asia with my, with my girlfriend. And, uh, you know, even through that, we, we, kept, uh, we kept touching base, kept uh, really digging in. And uh, my, my, usually the way I work is I just like to understand something deeply, uh, understand the full system, understand the incentives and really see how everything connects. And so that's what we did uh, for uh, five to six months, actually. Uh, it, was, it was quite a long time. And at the latter end of it, um, everything clicked. Uh, I really did understand what the venture business was for Angelist and you know, more specifically what it could become. And there were a lot of the characteristics of Square that I saw in that there really was a large financial platform that could be built. And uh, it just needed to be um, structured in the right way. And, and it would needed to have a, a certain, uh, you know, a, a product expansion. Um, it had product expansion needs in order to get there. And so once, you know, once that clicked for me, then it really became more of a personal decision of, Am I ready to get back into operating? Uh, interestingly enough, around that time, it, it was it had already been six months where I wasn't you know I was wasn't really operating, was living a very different style of life, 
um, basically retired. And um, I realized that, okay, this isn't the time for me to retire. Uh, and I officially accepted the role and, and Naval asked me to, Hey, can you start the next day? And I was like, well, not doing anything. And so that was it. And I haven't looked back since it was uh, qu- qu- quite a jolt uh, first day, first day back operating. Um, but it's been, it's been an awesome ride an awesome experience. Um, now in terms of, you know, why me, um, I, I can only share my perspective, uh, in term, you know, I, I, Given the experience I had from Square in terms of operating uh, and really understanding how a company can grow and continue to innovate, that was one aspect. The other aspect was also just driving a, uh, you know, driving and scaling an operation style company, a software enabled operation style company, uh, really gave me the uh, experience needed uh, to scale something like an Angelus venture. And so I think. I think that's actually the set of things or the set of characteristics that made it, uh, made it the right fit. And beyond that, uh, you know, to be honest, I'm here to build something very massive, uh, very large and enduring. I have no interest in, uh, in, uh, you know, in going through more acquisitions. And so I think that that's where the ambition fit was there as well. So since you've joined AngelList, you got to work pretty quickly, like you said, uh, you know, the next day showing up after basically thinking you were retired. Uh, You built out the syndicates product uh, in 2013, I believe, then the venture funds product in 2017. Um, And earlier this year, you you launched Rolling Funds, which has um, had somewhat of a, a viral uh, reaction or caused somewhat of a viral reaction on, on Twitter and elsewhere. A lot of people launching rolling funds uh, and a lot of excitement about the potential that they could have uh, to disrupt VC or, or more specifically uh, early stage VC pre-seed, seed rounds and series A. Um, would love to hear, first of all, your introduction of rolling funds for people who aren't familiar at all. And then we'll kind of assume people are familiar to some degree and, and dive into mm-hmm. some more specific questions that I have. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so ro- rolling funds are basically what venture funds would look like if they were built, uh, if they're originally built in the age of software. Uh, and really what rolling funds allow you to do is you can start a venture fund, you can uh, start accepting capital and start investing the capital right away and you, you can consistently accept uh, capital. You never have to shut down the fund for new capital. Uh, so this will be your one and only fund forever. Uh, and we, the, the, the best way to think about how great rolling funds are, are to actually think about how constrained uh, some of the traditional fund structures are. And the traditional fund structure is one where you go to raise a fund, you have to raise all of the capital upfront and then lock it down for new capital. And then you go into a deployment phase, which is where you start investing in companies. And then you have to repeat the process all over again. The reason that's painful is uh, because you have to raise all the capital at once, your fundraising strategy ends up being very different. You need to go after the anchor right away. You have to raise everything in a short amount of time um, within you know, six, 12, 18 months. And uh, you know, there've been posts after posts of how painful and arduous the process is. And so we, we did just see a better way with rolling funds. And uh, we just challenged some of the core assumptions around, well, why do you have to shut down the fund for new capital? Um, or what, you know, why, what, why can't you fundraise publicly 
Um, and so there were all of these assumptions that we were really able to challenge and we built out the, the rolling funds product. And I want to be clear that you know, we, we also have a large traditional fund business. We have syndicate traditional funds and rolling funds. And uh, you know, there are some cases where rolling funds are an amazing, amazing product. Uh, in some cases, we do see why you know, fund managers do want to choose traditional funds. Um, but I just wanted to provide perspective on in, you know, what rolling funds are relative to traditional funds. And uh, I do believe that if the, if the venture fund structure, which is only a few decades old, by the way, but if the venture fund structure was built in the age of software, it would have actually looked more like rolling funds versus a traditional fund. So I wrote a piece a few months ago, uh, as did a number of people. Uh, mine was called How Rolling Funds Could Rock VC. Uh, mm-hmm. And I wrote about how rolling funds are turning, among other things, they're turning 280-day uh, Sandhill roadshows into 280 character tweets. Uh, and then Naval, and you know, that speaks to the ease that it gives uh, the general partners, the people doing the investing to uh, raise capital from a number of limited partners, the people supplying the capital uh, without having to, you know, have anywhere from several to several dozen meetings. And there's stories of people who have to go through even more than that over, uh, you know, 10 months or, or, even longer than that. Uh, mm-hmm. Of course, if you have you know a nice track record, it, it might be a little easier than that. But at no point in history have people been able to, um, as far as I'm familiar, raise a fund in you know ten minutes with capital in the bank account that they can then start deploying immediately. And we're seeing people uh, taking screenshots of uh, you know getting limited partners invested in their funds in like four minutes from when the limited partner first learns about it. Uh, through Twitter or whatever it might be to actually having the money and the commitment uh, for the general partner to go and and start deploying some of that capital. Uh, Another quote that was attributed to the business was, uh, or to the product was Naval. He said, raise anytime, uh, raise anywhere. And I sort of added to that. I don't, I don't want to go messing with, with Naval's quotes because they're usually pretty good, but I added, um, you know, from anyone and by any means. Uh, And of course, anyone has to be accredited. uh, So that's one, you know, nuance of it um and any means of course has its limits as well but the uh the intent of that being to show that now investors who just have the skill of investing but maybe not the time or ability for fundraising can just sort of post a tweet or do a youtube video or whatever it might be host a zoom and raise capital from whoever's interested and whoever follows them uh, without having to spend a ton of time on the road and, and having one-on-one meetings and everything like that. So to your point, it's kind of a scalable, uh, immediate uh, solution to venture capital that seems like, to your point, if if VC was kind of developed when software was around, this is probably how it would have been done initially. Um, how do you see all of these innovations uh, and, and promotion of solo capitalists? So, you know, uh, general partners who are working on their own rather than as part of a firm, uh, micro LPs. I, I think you're actually both of these having been an LP yourself and uh, having your own rolling fund. How do you view all of these trends kind of coming together to change the whole landscape of, of early VC? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I, I would, I, I'll always go back to the answer of, um, you know, there's, it's sort of a natural continuation of the internet um, having, you know, removing friction. And, you know, if we think about 
even a decade ago to run a venture firm, it required multiple people. You'd have to stitch together all of these service providers. You'd have to have, you'd have to hire a CFO. You'd have to, you know, hire another, another admin person to help with a lot of the uh, sort of day-to-day tasks of running the fund. Fast forward to today, uh, we've actually built software and automated all of those things for you. And so there's a natural progression here of the of software providing more and more leverage, and uh, in, in in my from my perspective, it actually is that whole thing continuing to play out. And then it it you know it went from software providing leverage for the day to day administrative tasks or not needing as many service providers, and then so- software providing leverage hitting the fundraising task as well. Uh, and that's basically what we're now seeing with rolling funds as we've made the fundraising aspect of it significantly easier. Um, in terms of my view on how this will all play out, you know, I, I, I think that rolling funds will be a permanent fixture in the ecosystem um, and it will continue to grow. I know that there have been, uh, you know, that, that there have been some questions around, you know, whether any of these funds will continue to scale up. Uh, and, and I can definitely say they are scaling up very, very quickly. Um, and so I don't think that will be, the, uh, will be an issue. Uh, they're all continuing to scale up. They're actually making some you know, amazing investments into companies. And so I do think that uh, these will be permanent fixtures in the, in the venture landscape. And look, ultimately, we're here to serve founders, whether you're a VC or, or, or an angel investor, your job is ultimately to serve the founder. Um, and this does that. Now, in terms of the traditional VC, I do think that will also continue to coexist in a big way. Um, and and you, you can really think about it as stages, right? Um, when you're pre-seed or seed, uh, I think we'll see a much larger percentage of uh, uh, rolling funds. And then once you get to series A, series B, series C, you're gonna see a larger percentage of traditional funds that participate there. And over time, what'll happen is these rolling funds will get larger and larger and larger and it'll start being a larger percentage of series A or series B or series C. Um, but again, I, I do think that it, 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 will, uh, it will grow into that. These different fund structures will coexist. And so I, I, I don't think it's going to be a, you know, what one, what once one side or one type of fund structure will be all fund structures. So trying to play the devil's advocate yourself a little bit, um, mm-hmm. you talked about how, uh, rolling funds are poised to comprise a large percentage of, of the pre-seed, seed, series A, even series B. Just now you mentioned for, for the first time I'm hearing it that it could kind of grow into the later round series C, um, et cetera. From my perspective, it's, you know, if the traditional fund capabilities are included within the structure of a rolling fund and the options that a rolling fund offers, um, I don't see an obvious reason that the later round uh, you know, the big brand venture capital firms um, wouldn't just switch to rolling funds at some point in the future. And I know VC is like a long life cycle, so it could take, uh, you know, decades almost to get there. But is there anything really significant stopping some of the larger VC brands that we're familiar with from eventually moving to a rolling fund structure where they can uh, customize it a little bit more? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I would really say it comes down to um, you know, which of the funds are doing the uh, kind of the, the full life cycle, managing the full life cycle of the fund in-house. And, 
once you get to be a much, much, much larger fund where you have many different partners, um, there are certain aspects of it that some venture funds just prefer to manage that in-house. And so really, I think it'll be a question of um, whether they want to manage that in-house or not. Um, I'd say, you know, outside of that, just, just to clarify, actually, on the earlier point, uh, it's, it's clear from our data that pre-seed and seed, we're going to see very large participation from the, uh, from the rolling funds. Uh, and then as you get into Series A, Series B, I would say that will take, uh, we're going to see some of these rolling funds start participating there. And some of them already are. We're, we're seeing uh, fund managers start rolling opportunity funds. These are basically funds to do their pro ratas in the later stage rounds. And so we're already seeing all of this behavior playing out. And so they will start playing in the Series A and Series B uh, stage as well. And so I would say that will be the next, uh, the, the next jump, Series A, Series B. Series C, I would still say, is much, much further down the line, primarily because once you get into these later and later stages, you're uh, tapping into much larger uh, pools of capital. Um, and sometimes uh, the players that are playing in the Series C onwards are uh, hedge funds. They're actually, they're, they're firms that usually play in public markets, also playing in the private markets as well. And so there's a very different type of customer as you go further up in, in, the, in the stages. And so just wanted to clarify that, uh, my, my earlier point around the Series A and Series B. Yeah, that, that all makes sense. Uh, I have a question coming mm-hmm. from my, my article or for, from my piece that I wrote on, on rolling funds. At the end, I sort of speculated um, that rolling funds could uh, kind of, no pun intended, serve as a, a role model uh, for startups themselves. So my basic thinking is, uh, you know, you talk a lot about removing the friction. You remove the friction of the fundraise process for the general partner. And obviously this is the rolling funds is a really compelling um, offering for, for limited partners to invest as well, but just focusing on the, on the general partner for now uh, made their process a whole lot easier and kind of opened access for more of them to exist. Um, When I think about founders at at startups and the capital raising process that they have to go through uh, it's quite similar in terms of the friction uh, involved and having to commit several months oftentimes to uh, going and finding the investors and having one-on-one meetings, um, you know, in person or, or on Zoom, uh, even, you know, nowadays, even though it's on Zoom, it's still uh, one-on-one meetings and having to set up this whole uh, road, road show and, and, you know, sell it over and over again. Why is there not a future, or maybe there is, where startups are raising capital in a similar way to the way that you've set up rolling funds where they're collecting capital um, on sort of a a quarterly commitments rolling basis from a number of funds where the GP is kind of the LP in the rolling fund situation and the startup is kind of the GP? Yeah, I think it's a question of, um, I, I think it really is a question of what is right for the startup at that time. Uh, we are starting to see different startups experimenting with this uh, with, with this way of fundraising. Um, you know, there are startups that, of course, do crowdfunding. That that's not what we do on Angelus Venture, but there are startups who do crowdfunding as a way to raise from unaccredited. Um, and there are also uh, startups that will experiment with raising publicly um, from accredited investors. Now, 
is it going to have the same level of impact as uh, as it did with rolling funds? We don't know yet. Um, we, we are starting to, uh, so we already have the infrastructure to support this. So we are starting to provide this for startups and we're going to pay close attention. Um, so it's really, really hard to say what sort of an impact it's going to have. And it's interesting. Usually you can only assess the impact in hindsight. Um, you know, you put this out there, people will test it out, use, you know, configure it, use it in a certain way that you didn't even anticipate. And then in hindsight, you're like, aha, that's, that, that, that was the killer, that was the killer feature. Um, so we don't know yet if it's going to have the same level of impact, primarily also because the path to fundraising for a startup, there's just so many investors out there. Um, and especially now with rolling funds, we're adding more and more investors every day. And so the, the one thing I could see happening is um, publicly saying your fundraising could lead more investors to come to you. So it's a, it, it's a, uh, a very high leverage way of other investors finding out. Though, then there's also a thing that you have to consider where investors uh, usually invest in companies that, that through these networks, there an introductions made, there's a signal of like, yep, I'm also investing in this company. So that's, that, that's the piece that we just need to really think about and, and really observe how people use it. But we do have a product today that, that enables that. So I want to talk about, uh, you know, obviously you guys have a lot of people launching rolling funds and they're either, uh, there's some combination of people with large followings, whether it be Twitter or, or else, um, people with some investing experience or some founder experience where they can empathize with the founder, uh, or people with actual experience as a GP who just see this as a better structure. Um, so obviously it's going to take some more time to get to this next point that I'm about to get at, but let's use myself as an example. So, you know, I went to a good school and did a couple of years in investment banking and uh, before that had started a company, but I don't have nearly enough, uh, you know, cr credentials to go and, and raise a fund. Uh, and I don't have enough, you know, so I don't have the credentials uh, to raise. I don't have the access yet to startups. I was, I know I haven't spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley or anything like that. Um, what else? Uh, I'm not an accredited investor, so I, I literally can't do it. Uh, but a lot of these barriers are coming down, right? So accredited investor, the definition just got refined a bit where people can become accredited rather than having to meet a certain financial threshold. They can take uh, a number of series exams, which is something that I'm highly considering doing. Um, gaining access to investments, I think has never been easier. I can launch a podcast like this and have a number of founders on like I have, and suddenly, you know, a year or two in have a pretty good foothold in the space where I can reach out to someone I've had on the show or, uh, someone who I haven't and say like, look at this, you know, this track record of being kind of involved in this world. Um, I'm going to have access to some pretty interesting investments. If you want to give me some capital to allocate. Um, and then rolling funds being sort of the last piece of the puzzle where I don't have to think about, you know, when's the right time to raise a fund uh, nearly as much because I can sort of go and start one once I reach sort of a critical mass point uh, and start really small and, and have, you know, the, the proving out process kind of play out while actually deploying capital and then raise more over time. Um, do you think the way that I'm thinking of becoming a, an early stage investor as kind of from nothing to something rather than having this following already or having the investing or founding experience. Uh, do you think that's sort of the right way to think about it? And if you have anything extra to share, I uh, would appreciate that. I think people will 
have something to learn from it. And first and foremost, I'll certainly appreciate the answer and perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I would say that the, you know, the, the best way to uh, learn investing uh, in early stage startups is to start investing in early stage startups. And what it comes down to really is access, judgment. Uh, I would say those are two very important components. Um, access just means that you need to have access to the companies. The founders actually want you involved on the cap table. And then judgment is, you know, which companies to get involved with. Um, and with rolling funds, the nice thing is you, you can get started very, very quickly. You don't need a lot of capital to start making those investments and really start building a track record. And so the, the way you're thinking about it makes, makes total sense. Um, ultimately, it, it comes down to working backwards from what the founders, in this case, they would be your customer, really, really need. And founders ultimately need help with uh, three, three main things. One is recruiting. Uh, everything comes down to recruiting. Um, second is finding customers. And the third one is uh, fundraising. Uh, though the fundraising aspect of it gets, um, I don't want to say easier, but the, the paths are a lot more paved as you, get, as you go further down uh, into Series A, Series B. And fundraising really is, becomes a lot easier when you nail the first two. You nail recruiting and you nail um, finding customers. Uh, fundraising becomes a lot easier. So I would even just focus on the first two um, that have to do with helping startups recruit and then helping them find customers. I think on your end, as you're building an audience and you have more and more people listening to it, you'll probably have a, a founder uh, sort of investor fit because a founder investor fit for companies that would be interesting to your audience. And if you can help those companies get in front of the audience, um, that really, really helps in the early stages, uh, especially uh, when you're just starting the company out, every single customer really, really matters. And so I could definitely see, uh, I could definitely see a, a very strong pitch that you would have around, hey, I can help you with finding customers, especially if there's an audience fit there. Um, so yeah, I would say you're thinking about it in the right way. Uh, my, my only piece of advice to anyone uh, thinking about starting, uh, you know, starting investing in early stage startups work backwards from what the from the founder from what the founder needs because that ultimately will be why a founder selects you and how your reputation is built uh in in the industry that's great i, I really appreciate that perspective and uh will certainly rewind and, and listen myself a few times yeah. to think about how i can uh you know innovate on or, or you know incrementally improve the way that i'm thinking about things uh i know we're coming up on time so i want to wrap up here i do want to give you the last word uh, mm-hmm. to talk about anything that, that we haven't covered so far or, or tell people where to follow you and, and things like that. Uh, but, you know, Avlock, thank you so much for, for coming on the show today. I think you have a fascinating perspective from a, a wide variety of experiences and really look forward to seeing how uh, AngelList grows and develops into something massive in the future. Great. Thank you for having me. And uh, to follow along, uh, you know, anything I'm saying around rolling funds, you can uh, find me at twitter.com slash Avlock, A-V-L-O-K. And thanks again, Jake, for having me on the podcast and uh, really looking forward to listening to it. 